Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 28, verses 14 through 29. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused. To do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick, and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it, with his horses he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. We are uh, kind of resuming our series in Isaiah, specifically looking at this one final section before we come to the end of the year, chapters 29 through 35, which is also a very appropriate section for Advent because more and more you'll see us it pushing us towards Christ. Um, but uh, before we continue, could you please join with me in prayer? Father, your... Um, your words and even what you do are oftentimes strange to us. Uh, we often do not understand what you are doing when you are doing it or even sometimes what you are saying when you are saying it. Um, but we know you are good and we ask even now uh, that you would give us a clarity of attention, the ability to hear, and even the ability to understand that we more and more would be a people who draw near to you and are strengthened by you and show forth the beauty of you to the world around us. Pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So, so our passage from the very outset lets us know that it's about God doing something strange. Um, perhaps you notice this in verse 21. It says, The Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work, alien is his work. God is saying, I am going to do something strange. And as we look in this passage, what we will understand him saying is, I am going to bring my people through intense suffering. Now, I don't care how much you have studied the issues of suffering, the problem of evil, how much you try to do a theological understanding of why God allows us to experience pain, but the reality is when we actually encounter grief, when suddenly we face something that is more intense than just the normal difficulties, inevitably at some point or another you and I will experience confusion because it's strange. It doesn't make sense. We have a God who loves us, and in the moment we're experiencing pain, it's hard to see why would a God who loves us as deeply as he says he does and who is as in control as he is allow us to encounter what we are experiencing. Now, Scripture is seemingly very intentionally avoiding giving us direct answers to some of these questions. If there is a simple answer, it is that there is no simple answer. Scripture repeatedly says that the mess that this world is because of sin means there's chaos, there is injustice, there is divorce, there is disease, there is death, and there is no why that Scripture gives us that suddenly takes the pain of this away. It doesn't even try. But what Scripture does give us is not necessarily answers, but it gives us hope. It tells us that even as we experience the just intensity at times of suffering, yet God can somehow take this and do a kind of a divine alchemy, take what is painful and bad in and of itself, and in the same way he took what was painful and bad in the cross and made it something glorious, can do something glorious in the pain that we encounter. He can work good even in the midst of the pain that we experience. And that is the strange work that we see God saying he is doing in the lives of his people in our passage this morning. To understand this strange work, I want to back up and just kind of consider for a moment the problem that God's people has. This is the people of Judah, the, the lower two tribes that were formerly the nation of Israel. And what is clear by the time we get to this chapter is that Israel, sorry, Judah has a problem of avoiding God by turning to other nations. That is, rather than trusting God as God says, here are my promises, you can trust me with them, they keep on again and again saying, we don't want to have to deal with God, we would rather deal with nations. So you might remember if you were here with us when we looked in chapters 7 through 12, Isaiah says, as, as Judah is worried because these, uh, because the tribes of Syria, sorry, the nation of Syria and Israel are coming to attack them, and Judah is afraid for their lives, Isaiah says, don't worry, God has this under control, just trust in him. And the king of Judah is like, uh-uh, I don't want that, let's go to this big nation, Assyria, and ally ourselves with them because they can really protect us in a way that God can't. And it goes terribly for them. Because now by the time we get to this chapter, what's happened, the very nation that they have made an alliance with, Assyria, now is their enemy trying to destroy them. And so they're afraid again. And what do they do? This is the time that they should go, oh, this was foolish. Why are we trusting in nations? Let's trust in God. But what do they do instead? They say, well, you know what? Assyria didn't work for us. Let's go to Egypt. 
Egypt can be the one that protects us and saves us. They can be our refuge. And that will go just as poorly. And what do they do after that? They then go, well, maybe Babylon. Babylon is our answer, and that will go poorly too. Again and again, what we see is God's people avoiding God and instead going to other nations and saying, here, you are our hope. You are our salvation. You are the one that we can take refuge in. And that's the problem they have. It's almost like they have this pathological addiction to trusting in something other than God rather than dealing with God directly. And and the reason I'm saying that they're avoiding God is because if we were to go just a chapter from now, we would see God saying, here's the problem with my people. They are, they worship me with their lips, but they are far from me in their hearts. That is, the people of Judah right now are a people who are very religious. They say they have faith in, in the true God. They, they go through the, the sacrifices, the rituals, all of those things. But deep down, individually, personally, they do not know God. They do not know what it is to fear God, to personally trust God. They have a relationship problem with God, and as a result, they are just avoiding God and looking elsewhere for the things that only God can provide. Now, I want, I want us to understand this because I actually think that the problem that we see in the people of Judah is not just a Judah problem, it is a human problem. That, that throughout the world, the natural human tendency is for us to avoid our relationship with God and look elsewhere for God's substitutes that will keep God at arm's length so that we don't have to deal with our relationship with Him. It can be any number of things. Sometimes we look to achievement, to success, to give ourselves the meaning and the hope that only God can provide. I think of an illustration I probably have shared before from the Chariots of Fire. Perhaps you've seen that movie from many years ago. And uh, there is this uh, character, the sprinter, Harold Abrahams, who just before he is running in the Olympic race, he, he says to his trainer, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and I will look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. And perhaps you understand what he's saying. What he is saying is, I have doubts about my worth. I have doubts about the meaning of my life. And where I am going to go to find the refuge from those doubts is in my success. If only I can get the gold here, I will know I am worth something, I mean something, and my life is okay. And I want to suggest that he is not the only one who has that tendency. Think about how some of you, how you keep on working and working and working. And why are you working so hard? Because you're wanting... You're wanting respect. You're wanting to feel like you've achieved something. You're wanting to feel like you've succeeded. And there is this thought in the back of our minds that if we get to that point, then we will know that we are worth something. Maybe for you it's not achievement. Maybe it's, it's relationships that you look to kind of as your God substitute to kind of be your refuge. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Jerry Maguire. I know it, it goes back a number of years, but there's this scene at the very end where, where there's, like, you know, it's this romantic Jerry Maguire who's almost destroyed his marriage, comes to this kind of support group of women, and right in the middle of the group, he breaks in and has these romantic statements about how much he loves her. And at the very end, he says, I love you, you 
complete me. And, and like, I think we're supposed to feel, and many of us do when we're watching, oh, that's so, oh, so beautiful. Except when we actually pause to think about what he is saying, he is saying to his wife, without you, I don't have all that I need, but with you, I have everything that I need. In you, I have all to give my life fullness and meaning. How in the world can that sustain itself? And yet, how often do we have that same sense that just a relationship is what can define us, is what can complete us. Whether it's when we're single, sometimes there can be a feeling if we can be in the right relationship, that can make us feel full. Or, or sometimes I've seen even with parents have their identity invested in their children and their children are everything and their children are what completes them. It can be a God substitute. You know, sometimes we can avoid God by actually trying to do good things, religious things. I'm reminded of a Flannery O'Connor quote uh, where she describes one character as someone who knew that the best way to avoid Jesus was by avoiding sin. And I think about how for me early on, part of what I think when I was motivated for serving for ministry, and it's embarrassing to even say it, but as I look back, I think this was actually the case. I think I had this theory at the back of my mind that if I was useful to God, if I was doing something important for him, then I wouldn't really have to worry about my life because, of course, he would protect me and spare me from any harm because I was important to him. Now, that's not a trust in God. That's a trust in my own manipulation of God. It is a form of a God substitute. And I want to say we see that same dynamic in, in God's people here, that their problem is rather than dealing with God and hearing him and dealing with a relationship, they just keep going elsewhere and avoiding the relationship with God. And what's more, they don't even think there's much of a problem with it. Perhaps you notice at the very beginning, it says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. They, they have been warned. God's people have been warned by Isaiah. Isaiah saying, this is not going to go well for you. Stop looking elsewhere rather than God. And they're like, well, this isn't a big deal. And so we see, actually, in that opening verse, where the, where the tension is, where the disagreement is. Do you notice where it says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said... We have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, which is another word for the grave. We have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge. And in falsehood, we have taken shelter. This seems like an awfully strange thing for them to say, doesn't it? We have taken a refuge in lies. And if we look at chapter 30, we'll realize that's not actually what God's people literally are saying. They are literally saying, we have made a covenant with Egypt. And we have made the soldiers of Egypt our refuge. We are trusting that they will protect us when Assyria comes and wants to attack us. But see, God right here is translating. He's saying, let me tell you what you actually mean. You think that you are safe. You think you are protected with Egypt. But, but really, you have made a refuge in lies. You have been, made a binding agreement with death itself. One of my uh, favorite novels from the last 50 years is a novel by the name of Watership Down. Perhaps some of you 
have, have read it by Richard Adams. I think it's considered by many a classic. It's, it tells the story of Hazel and a bunch of other rabbits having to flee their original home to look for a new home where they can kind of establish a new life. And as they are journeying, as they are looking for a place, they come across this warren that seems perfect. Somehow there are no predators anywhere around. The rabbits who are in the warren seem relaxed, fat, sleek. There is plenty of food for them to eat, and for some reason, these rabbits invite Hazel and his friends to join them. Why wouldn't you want to join this perfect scenario, except things start feeling a little strange. They, they notice that there aren't really enough rabbits that there should be for a war in this size, and these rabbits don't like to tell stories, and these rabbits seem sad. And it's, and it's only when one of Hazel's friends gets caught in a snare that they realize the, the really terrifying truth that this actually is one gigantic trap, that there is a farmer who is shooting the predators and providing food, so month after month it can get another rabbit and he can get another rabbit for his own uses. It is quite literally a death trap. And that's what God is saying to his people, you think that you have found a refuge, you think you have found the perfect situation in Egypt, but I want you to understand that what you have found in binding yourself to this nation is a death trap. Because whenever we place our ultimate hope in something other than the author of life, we are turning towards death. Whenever we are looking for refuge, for protection in someone other than the one who holds all things in our, his hands, we are finding our refuge in a bunch of lies. And I want to say that's exactly what God would say to us as well. How much do you think it will take? How many things do you feel like you need to put on your resume until you're completely satisfied and you feel like you mean something? Do you honestly think that a relationship can handle the weight of all of your hopes and all of your life and all of your meaning? Everything that we look to other than God for our refuge, for binding ourselves to him and our hope, is ultimately a death trap. That's what God says here. You have bound yourself to death, but the problem is, no matter what he tells them, they seem to not listen. They are scoffers. Sure, Isaiah, you say what you want, but this is going to be fine. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever had it when you have a friend who is doing something that is self-destructive, and you know it is self-destructive, and you seek to help them to see that it is self-destructive, and they just refuse to listen? Have you ever been in a situation like that? What do you do when you know your friend is doing something like that and you cannot convince them otherwise? Well, what God does is what we have already identified as a strange work. Let's look again back at verse 21. It says, For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work. Alien is his work. What, what is he talking about? Perizim and Gibeon are the name of famous battles. One with David, one with Joshua, where God's presence was clear. Where they saw God with them as they fought. 
And God says, once again, you will see me when you go to battle. But what will be strange is when you see me, I won't be on your side. What you will experience is something very different. And, and he describes exactly what that is. If we back up just to halfway through 18, when the overwhelming scourge, and the overwhelming scourge here is speaking to the army of Assyria, passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night. It will be sheer terror to understand the message. Do you understand what's being spoken of? The Assyrian army is going to come and is going to destroy the army of Judah. And, and houses will be torn down. And families will be terrified as they flee and will have nightmares. And there will be death. And it will be awful. And the people of Judah, God's people, will say, why? Why, if you are our God, are you bringing us through this intense suffering? And the answer comes if we go just back a little bit to verse 17 and 18. When halfway through 17 it says, Hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. What do we do when we see someone making a self-destructive decision? I think the only answer is we allow them to experience the terrible consequences of their action and we hope that they learn, right? We, 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 we hope that somehow they can experience a kind of rock bottom and as they do, they come to recognize what is true. And that is what God is saying his strange work is towards his people. He is saying, I am going to allow you to experience the flood that is Assyria. And as this flood comes and you think that Egypt will be walls and will be a refuge that will protect you, when this flood comes, those walls will crumble. And you will recognize that you have made a covenant with death. And it will all crumble around you. And only then, only then will you see. Sometimes, this is how God works with us as well. Sometimes, when we have even as we seek to trust God in reality, when we have placed our hope, our weight on other things, God in his love will bring us through a period of suffering where those things will crumble around us. Maybe it means we're laid off from a job and we feel like a failure. Maybe we find ourselves disconnected from a relationship that means everything to us. Or maybe as we seek to live faithfully to God, we fail miserably and we feel like we are nothing before him. Now, please, please don't misunderstand me. What I am not saying here is that every time we go through some kind of difficulty, that's because God is trying to cure some sin within us. Scripture is abundantly clear that we cannot make a one-to-one -one correlation, that so many times when we go through suffering, there is no clear explanation for it. And yet, Scripture also tells us that sometimes, sometimes if we 
open our eyes and look as we are encountering grief, we see that God in his kindness is bringing down those false refuges that we once trusted in. Those who have faced grief, you know this, that that when you are encountering suffering and grief, you start learning what truly can support you and what can't. We, we start recognizing what, what we thought was important isn't necessarily important. What we thought was so strong and permanent was fragile. And in those moments, and in those moments, we're allowed to begin to see what we couldn't see before. Now, in those moments, it can feel like God is absolutely against us. It can feel like the thing that means most to us in our life is being lost and there is nothing left and we can feel hopeless. And what God wants us to understand is that he is not doing this to hurt us, to harm us. That is not his end goal. He is doing this to heal us. If we move just kind of a little later on, perhaps you found yourself a little bewildered when suddenly we move from the metaphor of, of refuge to, to something more about agriculture. But consider what he's saying in verses 23 and following when he says, Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, so cumin, and put in wheat in rows. What is he saying here? Think about what a farmer does every year. Every year, especially in that day, a farmer would have to plow, which is in some ways a violent act. He would have to cut through this hard soil. He would have to break it apart. He would have to turn things upside down, but he doesn't plow forever. It's not just about breaking and breaking and breaking. The whole purpose of this plowing, of breaking the old hardness apart, is so that there can be a softness so that planting can take place and new life can begin. And God is saying to his people then and now, I'm not plowing so that I can plow forever. I am plowing to break things up so that there might be life and there might be healing. And where that is most clear, really what is kind of the center of this passage that we haven't even looked at right now, comes in verse 16. So it's important for us to recognize that when God says, you have done this, you have bound yourself to something that is not me, it is a covenant with death, he doesn't only say, and so I will destroy you. In fact, that's not even what he says to begin with. Notice, what is the first thing he says after he says, you have made lies our refuge Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. Do you understand what God is saying? He is saying, even as you have made this feeble foundation, this refuge of lies, I am going to build a better refuge. This foundation will have a tested cornerstone that will be safe and will be secure. The walls that I'm building will be straight and, and plumb. And when the flood comes, they will stand firm so that anyone who takes refuge here 
will not need to be afraid, will not be in haste, will not have to fret back and forth, will not need to be anxious, but can be confident and can be resting because my refuge is secure. And once everything has fallen apart around us, has fallen apart around you, then you will see my refuge and you will stop avoiding me and you will come and I will welcome you in that your footing will be firm as you take refuge in my refuge. That's what he's saying here. What is this foundation that he's talking about when he's saying he's laying a cornerstone? Well, in the time of Isaiah, it's clearly the promises of God. If you think about it, God doesn't ever have to make promises. So you ask, why does God make promises? It's to give us strength when things don't make sense to us in the moment. It's, it's a foundation to put on. What are the promises? God, God promises to his people, if you trust in me, I will protect you. If you trust in me, I will keep you through whatever the, the fire or the water that you encounter. If you trust in me, I will bring you to the end where all will be made right. And God is saying here, I have laid this foundation, this cornerstone of my promises. And if you enter here and place your weight on this, you will be saved. Now, in the New Testament, those promises gain focus, don't they? All God's promises find their yes in Christ Jesus, we're told. That the cornerstone, the New Testament says, is, is Jesus himself. He is the one who is tested, tested even through death, showing his faithfulness. He is the one who is secure. And what we are being told is that even as everything collapses around us, Jesus is this cornerstone, this foundation that we can find security and hope and peace in. And here's the thing. If you have experienced grief and suffering and you are now on the other side, you know what I am about to say is true. That when we experience suffering, things that once seemed safe to us seem much less safe. And yet at the same time, what maybe felt feeble in terms of our faith in Christ, what maybe felt really weak and uncertain, suddenly in the moment that we are suffering, we realize there is more certainty and strength and power in Christ Jesus than in anything else. And we learn where our refuge truly lies. I'm reminded of um, the story of a man by the name of Edward Mote. He was a carpenter in the 19th century who eventually became a pastor. Um, and he started kind of dabbling in writing hymns. And there was one time where he was coming to visit a family who, where the wife was on her deathbed. She wouldn't live for more than a couple more weeks. And let me ask you, when you are visiting someone who is about to die, what do you have to say that can help them? They wanted a prayer, they wanted some God's word, and they wanted maybe a song to sing, something that could give them strength in that moment. And the song, of course, can't just be about, hey, you achieved so much. That's not going to be of value to you when you're on your deathbed. Even relationships, this person who's dying is about to leave everyone they love. What, what do you have to say well, Edward Mote pulled out a hymn that he had just written, and the words might be familiar to us. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my help and stay. 
On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That is what they sang together, and that that is the gospel we have in the midst of when we are experiencing suffering. In this Advent season, we are reminded that our world will not be right until Jesus is King of all. And at the same time, I want you and me to know that you and I will not be right, will not be whole until we wholly belong to Christ. And our God who loves us and at times loves us strangely will not rest until he makes us whole and wholly his. I want us uh, to take a moment just kind of to, to pause and reflect and think about what God is saying in his word to us. And then in a moment's time, I will lead us in a written confession. It's the confession we'll be using throughout all of Advent, printed in your bulletin, so be ready with that, where it says community confession of sin. So let's just take a moment in silence to kind of reflect and to kind of hear what God is saying to us, and then I'll lead us together in our time of confession.